the day spent well, however we have felt the day to be, just acknowledging that uh, the uh, situation where we can practice together in this supportive environment is, uh, is a result of many blessings in our lives. So being able to really uh, appreciate, I've been very much appreciating this context that we're in today, uh, the, both the, the group and the, the holding of the group and everyone's practice. I just want to thank everyone for your practice because it helps me, it helps each other, it helps all of us just uh, uh, coming here and being with however it is, whatever's happening for us in any moment. Uh, this, this is a, a way that helps to generate this field of blessings. And also for those supporting this retreat, I really appreciate those that are less seen in the hall, but in the background, do all the things that go on to help a retreat happen. Um, and those that have made this center possible and this land itself, the, the incredible holding of these mountains and the, the power of this land. It's, there's, a, there's a power here that uh, we're, we're actually tapping into and is also supporting our retreat, all the beings that are here, seen and unseen. So for, for this, I, I feel very appreciative. And uh, just being able to uh, open the heart to the blessings that uh, we have in our life is a source that can bring a sense of well-being, a sense of energy, a sense of uh, you know, um, fullness. Even if we feel the day hasn't gone so well, you know, sometimes we can be on a retreat and there's all these talks about you know, being still and calm or we sit there in the interview and someone else is talking about feeling radiant and blissful and joy and we, you know, deeply concentrated and we can't even find the breath, you know, it's two days in and we feel all over the place, the mind skittish, turbulence, difficult mind states. But however it's been, whether it's been very peaceful and we felt I'm on the edge of awakening <laughs> or maybe I have plunged into the, the deathless <laughs> flow of the Dhamma, <laughs> or I just feel a complete mess, you know, however it's been, we know that in any moment we can start again. Yeah. In this moment, there's only really this moment, that's all there ever actually is, is here and now. So any moment we turn to being present to receive the experience, we're, we're in the flow of the Dhamma. So the other... <clears throat> evening, uh, Eugene talked a little bit about how to listen to a Dhamma talk, and I'd like to just embroider a little bit onto that, because I, I, I think it's very valuable, because although I'm sitting here in this position of uh, producing the Dhamma talk, <laughs> in fact, it's a, it's a dynamic that's happening for all of us. You know, the, the talk depends also on the presence here that we all contribute to. It's, it's not, well, I, I will take responsibility for it, but in some ways it's not exactly my talk, it's just a talk. And so being rooted in our own awareness helps, uh, helps the talk to happen, helps me to stay rooted. Uh, but there's also a, a way of listening that we can reflect on. And one of the first 
Dhamma talks I heard uh, from Ajahn Chah when he came to England in 1977. I was practicing at a retreat outside of Oxford and he'd come to that retreat center which was run by a Burmese couple. And he was giving a teaching to the students at Oxford. And I snuck out of the retreat to go and listen. And I hadn't really heard someone teaching the Dhamma or, or the presence of Ajahn Chah, which was very, uh, he was a very free, he was very free in a way, very powerful uh, and, and had a, a great radiancy and warmth, but mostly this sense of freedom that he embodied. Uh, no agendas, <laughs> didn't have to please anyone, which is kind of rare to meet someone like that. So I was sitting there listening to his Dhamma talk, and as he was speaking, I just kept feeling like and thinking, wow, this is really good, you know, this is fantastic, this is, this is great. And then at the end of his talk, he said, well, if you've been sitting here listening to this, thinking this is good or this is bad, you haven't been listening properly. And then I thought, well, that's really good, eh? <laughs> you know, this uh, is... Uh, there's a certain way that we, we listen through the filters of our mind, you know, through what happened yesterday or what the Dhamma is or what we know or what should be said or, or even listening not only to something like a, a talk like this, how we listen, but how we listen to each moment, how we project onto the moment, usually in terms of how it should be. You know, and often it's not, it's not an accurate listening because there's always this tendency to distort our relationship to the actuality of the moment with this sense of it, somehow it should be a bit different. You know, or, or, or I, I should be, or mostly that projection goes inwardly and generates a sense of self that somehow should be different. Whatever's here isn't quite right this feeling that it somehow should be a, a, a different way. So when, when, we're do, when the mind is doing that, when it's caught in that reactivity, even at a subtle level of this, this uh, skittishness, really, around the actuality of the moment, however it is, then we're not really connected with this depth listening. We're not really listening to the actuality of, of our being, of the flow of things, of the, that which, when we really deeply listening, then we're in touch with the Dhamma. And we realize, although we might be hearing a Dhamma teaching from someone that might think they know what they're doing or saying, (laughs) but they may not, (laughs) that actually everything is teaching us the Dhamma when we really know how to listen. We're never apart from the Dhamma. Every mood, every feeling, every sensation, every mind state, the arising and passing of the the light, the day, the night, the morning, the seasons, the changes in the body, the the changes in relationships, in our circumstance, and and more immediately just the flow of however things unfold and reveal themselves to us. Everything is the Dhamma is always revealing itself to us when we more profoundly just uh, move out of our strategy of how it should be and just allow ourselves to be open in awareness to the moment. So the Dhamma really isn't, I mean, Buddhism, Buddhism in a way isn't the Dhamma and Dhamma teachings aren't the Dhamma <laughs> in actuality. They are the Dhamma. 
but they're not the Dhamma. They're, they're, they're the Dhamma in that there's a container. They help orientate us. You know, they're a bit like the skin of the fruit, as Ajahn Chah would say. They're the, the peel of the fruit. And if we just get too hooked on chewing on that peel, it can sometimes it can you know, give us a, some sense of juice and energy. But, but in some ways, we can lose the actual depth of nourishment and vitality that comes with the immediacy of connection with the flow of the Dhamma, which transcends all forms. You know, so the Dhamma, as they say, is akaliko, ehi, pasiko. It's timeless, it's here and now, it's inviting us in every moment inward. So our connection with that flow, with that immediacy, that, that dynamic way of things revealing and unfolding their nature to us, whether it's the nature of, of a thought or the nature of fear or the nature of anxiety or the nature of love and joy or the nature of hope and despair, the nature of longing, whatever its nature, that is teaching us. That's its nature, that's its dhamma. It's dhamma, it's nature. It's not usually we're so busy reacting to how it is that we can't really hear it, we're not really listening more deeply. So the mind, as the mind settles, as we've been practicing with the Anapanasati, uh, so beautifully spoken to uh, last night and in the morning instructions, as the mind begins to, you know, as, the, as we come and connect with breath, with body, there's a certain settling, a gathering of what's called samadhi, and the, the heart begins to release out of it some of its compulsions. Then actually there's this quality of what's called awareness that starts to appear, or knowingness, an innate knowingness of the heart and the mind, a natural knowing. It's called vijja, the ability to, to just see the way things are, to be in contact with the way things are. So when the heart is clear, when there's a knowing here and now, when there's a, a, a letting go of our strategies around the moment, which is, which is in a way moving into, into a sort of a certain, the sense of self can feel very vulnerable in that movement of letting go because it's, a, it's a, a movement of being stripping away from all the things we know, all the certainties. We're actually entering more deeply into the reality of the uncertainty, the flow. And then that knowing, from that knowing, then we can know the Dhamma of things. The, the mind is clear, there's awareness, it's contemplating the Dhamma the actuality of whatever is unfolding here and now. And when there's, when there's the, the lack of seeing or the lack of uh, clarity, the avijja, the not seeing how the nature of things are, when there's a mistake and assumption around the nature of things, when the flow of things as they arise and pass, when we interpret them as this is me and this is my problem and we start to struggle or we resist, or we get shaped by and moved by whatever's emerging in the moment. 
then this avidya generates the experience of what's called samsara, this feeling of it never being quite enough or never being settled or never being at ease here and now. And that feeling of samsara or, or, or dislocation or lack of ease is the, is the, the, the sense of being perpetu- perpetually moving in the, in the feeling of time into the next thing, looking for the next thing, moving on to the next thing. It's never enough now, if you've noticed. <laughs> Something in the mind will always feel, well, <laughs> you know, there's the, the illusion of in the future we'll get there, wherever there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that, and that is so insidious and so pervasive and so powerful, this feeling of, this is the feeling of samsara, that sort of lack of easefulness here, lack of rootedness in the the heart dwelling in its own awareness, in its own presence, in its own fullness, in this sense of not really being with the flow of the Dhamma, nourished by the unfolding of whatever's, whatever's unfolding, really contemplating it, being with it, but being a sense of it's, it's somehow in the future, somewhere moving on. But there isn't a future, actually. So that's what, an illusion in the mind. <laughs> There's only now. <laughs> There's only now. I mean, there is a future. <laughs> but there isn't. <laughs> you know, in this moment, the, the future is always only a perception here and now. Until we illuminate that with awareness, when we see its nature, the nature of actually whatever's emerging. The seeds of the future obviously are here and now. We can feel the sense of the shaping of what might come. But in actuality, the reality of our our awareness is always present here and now. And the future, as Ajahn Sumedho, our wonderful teacher, would say that we have the sense somehow of moving through life. We're, We're this entity of me that's moving through all these experiences and that's, that's really coming from the, the assumption of our self-structure, our self, our sense of self, with these things that we've done, these memories that we have, and these places that we're going, and the things we have yet to do and accomplish and realize and mature into, and all of that's kind of true on one level. So there's, that's how we feel ourselves to be. We have this past, and we're going moving into the future, but when there's, a, when there's a shift through this practice of Dhamma, through this inquiry, a shift of orientation or, or of a relinquishment on some level of identification with that sense of movement, that's still happening, but we're not taking it so seriously, or maybe we're holding it more lightly, and what becomes more revealed is this underlying awareness and presence of the heart and mind, then, as Ajahn Sumedha would say, we recognize that in reality, the sense of past and future, the feeling of our life is unfolding within this present moment awareness, and that's all that's ever really happening. So in this practice, you know, I said earlier that Buddhism, and Buddhism, Dharma practice, Dharma teachings... Uh, you know, we're not really here to 
to become good Buddhists or good meditators, but we're really here to use these teachings as skillful means. The Buddha called them a raft. We're here to use them to really liberate the heart from its illusions, from its, uh, from its false assumptions about the nature of things, liberating the heart so it can recognize the depth of its immovability, its, its, its the suchness of the heart, the, the presence of the heart. And, and deepen our trust in that, deepen our abiding in that within the midst of life as it's unfolding and moving. So this practice, these practices that we're doing are really practices to help us uh, realize that more fully and to, to liberate the heart, particularly from the sense of constriction and pain and suffering. Not that necessarily suffering, pain and constriction stop. <laughs> That's the nature of things, but there's, there's the ability to have some perspective through this practice. That perspective is the, 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 that which is wise, which can wisely contemplate the nature of things. So I'd like to actually, to help illustrate um, what I'm trying to talk about, <laughs> I'd like to share a beautiful poem with you tonight and then use that to unpackage it a little bit to talk to this uh, cultivation of the wise heart, the heart that can see, the, the vicha, the cultivation of this clarity of insight, uh, which can liberate. So this, this poem's by someone called Mark Nepo. Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but trying to be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk for a while, but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong, but then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it's a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call God. Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening. This, uh, this for me, I'm just going to reflect on this, how this, these lines speak to me. There's a, a teaching that's very helpful and one that Ajahn Chah used a lot with his disciples. And this was uh, when, when one would go on one of the first, one of the early meetings that I had with Ajahn Chah when he, when, when he, um, he came during that same visit in, in the UK. He came to, to visit a community that I was living in. And we were sort of young meditators trying to do the enlightenment thing, taking it all very seriously. 
And um, he, he, he arrived one morning and he had this, as I just mentioned, this, quite, this incredible presence and he came, walked into the community. We'd been cleaning up everything, getting everything ready and he just kind of, his, just his presence kind of brought everything to, this, to a stop just to feel like, oh my God, you know, he, he just had this way of just bringing one into a sense of, of um, stillness. Uh, and, and, and there would be a way in his presence that there would be a bit of wob- wobble and feel the sense of self-wobbling and fear, you know, like, oh my God, <laughs> it's like being in the lion's den a bit. <laughs> you don't quite know what's going to... In a very powerful presence. So, so we were sitting together at a table and, um, you know, and just not quite, quite sure what one says to monks or how one would host them. And those were the early days we hadn't had a lot of contact with the monastics. So, you know, Ajahn Chah. And he was sitting there and he just looked at everyone around the table. And then he just he kind of took it all in, you know, these young Westerners. And we, we were all in our early 20s. And he just went and said, some of us younger, he just went, Bua Mai, which in Thai means Bua, means like, sort of sounds like, you know, what it, it means what it sounds like, Bua, like you're just about to throw up. <laughs> it kind of means something like, have you had enough, you know? Have you had enough? Have you had enough yet? You know, have you had enough? What's enough? You know, how many more experiences do you need? How much? You know, how much do you, how much do, do you, that was implied in the question. And in the way he said it had a very powerful impact on me because it felt like someone had, you know, I've been circling for eons almost and someone had just kind of come with this question and for a moment there was a stopping. You know, and this, and this is a prerequisite in many ways to the, to, to the, the walking of the path of practice. In Pali they call it nibida which means a, a weariness or a disenchantment, feeling a, a disenchantment with the things that have enchanted us before, you know, the things that we've really um, looked to for, for completion. There's a way that, you know, that our fundamental experience in life as, as human beings, you know, we're born and we experience ourselves as separate. It's in a way the fundamental depth of, our, uh, of dukkha, that, that feeling of separateness, which is which is so profound, or, or as it's said in this poem, I too feel alone, aloneness or loneliness, or and this 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 uh, endless search for somehow to to resolve that that experience of our aloneness to you know, through scanning the sensory world for something that will fulfill us through through every activity that we do, and there are ways that that we do feel that and, and we get nourished and then there's sometimes ways that that doesn't happen and we're, we're confronted quite powerfully often in, uh, in the unfolding of a spiritual contemplative path which I think this poem in a way speaks very well to the contemplative journey it lays out the whole journey in these few lines there's a way that we're confronted with this experience of just disenchantment you know however much our society and it's billion-dollar industry you know, keeps us distracted, <laughs> keeps us absorbed, you know, keeps us moving. And we have such power to shift the world around us. If it's uncomfortable, if we don't like it, we can just click a switch and shift the whole terrain. You know, and we do that so quickly that we, we, 
in a way we have this kind of rootlessness that's come about through our inability to really root ourselves here and now in our presence because we can't really get through the layers that we need to get to to really access this unshakable presence of heart because we're always reacting to the surface, the, the discomfort that we feel. And you know, as, as the Buddha laid out in his teaching of the Four Noble Truths, that the journey into that depth of peace has to, by necessity, go through the first noble truth. We have to enter through the journey, the mysterious journey of the experience of suffering and, and wrestle with it. But the prerequisite often to the willingness to enter that journey is this experience of nibbida. We don't know where to turn the mind anymore and the things that would fulfill us don't. This can be quite quite funny the way that, you know, in some ways it's quite poignant and it's quite amazing how we shift the conditions of the world to bring us a sense of happiness and quite amusing. I, I remember one of my teachers, Ajahn Sajito, monk, telling the story that when he was um, teaching at a retreat, that one of the, uh, <clears throat> one of the yogis on the retreat there was a little stream running by the retreat, and one of the yogis was all he could hear in the stream was that the way that the stream was running, he could just hear stars and stripes playing all the whole time, and it was driving him nuts. And so he, he found himself one lunch break going out and moving the rocks so he could change the tune. You know, it's like, <laughs> and in a way, I mean, it's kind of the madness you see on the meditation retreat, and there's no, you get to see the madness of the mind, you know, how we, we do all these things. <laughs> and, you know, in a way, it's funny, but, you know, in, in life, when we can actually do that in a serious way, we don't see it, we don't think it's funny. It's really, we take it very seriously, and I just keep moving all the rocks of our life around, you know, so we can get the right tune. You know, and there's a certain way that that gets exhausting. <laughs> so, you know, when we feel this nibida experience, you know, in, in Thailand, they would consider that a sign of maturity, spiritual maturity, or on the edge of something else. In, in our culture, it's like, oh my God, you know, go shopping quick, or, you know, it's, you know, something's wrong, you know. Uh, it's a very hard feeling to endure, actually. It's quite, it can be quite a serious process. It's a, you know, the entry into in the contemplative journey into sometimes what's called the, the dark night of the soul. It sounds a bit dramatic, but there is, there is doors that start to close and, and perhaps the realizations haven't opened yet and, that, you know, the, the things that would give us a buzz or a hit don't do it anymore. So when, when Ajahn Chah put that question, he was pitching so accurately into the into the reality of, of, I think, where we, we are in our culture at this particular time and have been for quite a while now, where we've had the power to manipulate our circumstance. And yet, in some ways, it's made us even more dissatisfied and less content and less rooted and less belonging and less free, even more frenetic. So it's you know this was and this was this is the this is an archetypal shift. I mean the Buddha himself went through in his journey, which is an archetypal story. Could speak to the same process of the mind turning through this weariness in this poem, having loved enough and lost enough. That's it, isn't it? You know, <laughs> I'm no longer searching. It's like when we get to that doorway, just opening. 
So when we were doing, you know, this is why, you know, we've been introducing the bowing in the, um, <clears throat> in the monastic training. There, there's so much bowing, you know, it used to drive me nuts in the end. Everywhere you had to bow. You go into a room, you bow. You leave a room, you bow. You bow to your fellow monastics. You bow to your teachers. You bow to shrines. You bow when you wake up. You bow when you go to sleep. You're forever just sort of, you know, you're supposed to contemplate bowing to the Buddha, bowing to the Dhamma, bowing to the Sangha. And I used to get so habituated, I'd just go, one, two, three, one, two, three. <laughs> and I think, what am I doing? <laughs> That's the trouble with any method. It just, we get, we get to sort of <laughs> get to, to the place where it doesn't really work very well sometimes. But, but there's something very profound about this bowing as, a, as an external mudra, but an internal mudra in our meditation practice. Because there's a place when we don't, we can't shift it anymore through our will, through our power, through our desire, through our wish for it to be another way. And the only move we really have sometimes, which is sometimes it's a real, can be a very profound, op- you know, doorway, is is to open to the actuality of this is how it is in this moment. Yeah. And everything in us will resist that bareness, the unconditional nakedness of just meeting the actuality of here. And yet, you know, without that, there's still this, you know, this, the, 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 the constant push and pull around the actuality of, 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 of how it is. And so this, you know, this can be... Just to uh, tell you another story about the bowing, actually, before I want to move on, because I do think it's such a powerful practice to internalize. We can't always bow, you know, physically, but there. But if we can actually get that feeling of meeting life with it, with moments of just opening, moments of being willing to be here a bit more, then it can be very transformative. When we, when we were living as, when I was living as a monastic, we had a, a, a monk that had been uh, um, in Vietnam. He'd been a Marine, and he'd um, come to Ajahn Chah. He, you know, as, as quite a few of the monks did in their early years, they'd left Vietnam, gone to Thailand for R and R, and found themselves drifting up on the shores of uh, Ajahn Chah's monastery. And this monk stayed, he, he ordained, he stayed a monk for 20 years. He, he, he died um, not a few years ago. His name's Ajahn Anando. Some of you might have met him. He's American, obviously. And he eventually died from the, the wound that he received when he was shot in Vietnam and created a tumor in the brain. But he had this, he had this training as a Marine, you know, so that he, he had this way of... Uh, you know, that he'd, he was working to transform that, but it was conditioned in very deeply. And there was a, an incident that happened in the monastery, a, a conflict that he'd had with, um, ongoing conflict with another monk. And one day this conflict blew up and they became, you know, a lot of animosity, a lot of uh, negativity. And uh, they were arguing about something and Nando said to this other monk, okay, meet you on the lawn. <laughs> Since his marine, his marine training came up, you know, so they're out there arguing, and he said he could feel everything in him go into this kind of fist. You know, just want to just 
take this other guy out. And at that moment, he just took that tendency and put his palms together and bowed, bowed to the other monk. Yeah, and it just it kind of just blew them both away, and they were crying. And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good story because, because it's, I mean, it's not necessary to say that that was the end of the story. They had to carry on working with the stuff, but it's a key, it's a way of realizing when we're really up internally, either externally in our life with a difficulty or when we sit here and we're faced with something that comes up that's painful to be with, that this inner opening, you know, a moment we don't know, the bow is, I don't know, actually. I, ha- I can't fix it. I can't necessarily sort it. I haven't got a strategy. <laughs> and the contemplative journey over and over again faces us with those moments. And actually, what, of course, what we're resisting is the experience, as is laid out in the, in the second verse, no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. You know, so, so this bowing into our willingness to really sometimes allow ourselves to be with the experience of dukkha, that which is unsatisfactory, that which is painful, that which is a sense of dis-ease. And when we meet it, we're no longer meeting it with our strategies, with our escape hatches, with our conditions upon it, with our desire to fix it quick, in this contemplative way, we can do all of that. And I'm not saying that having strategies is not skillful. It can be. But in this contemplative journey, there's a, there's a sort of a, a, a cultivation of skill that, is, that enables us to really meet the experience of dukkha as it is, when it arises. And a part of this skill is what we've been doing in the samatha meditation, in the calming meditation, in learning to steady the attention with the breath, with the body, so we learn to, to know what it is to have a steadiness of attention, a strength of attention, a strength of, of mindfulness that can actually meet the actuality of, of how it is. And if there's dukkha arising, then we can, mindfulness is that which can replace the reactivity around the experience of that which is painful, either resisting, moving on, distracting, changing the rocks around in the, in the, in the ocean. <laughs> it's that which can just say, this is how it is, and be willing to feel it, being willing to know it as a doorway, not as an end in itself, it's a doorway. So a lot of what we experience when we come into meditation retreat, not everything, but there is a confrontation with this first noble truth. At some point, we're going to be here and we're going to experience what the Buddha called dukkha. There is this experience of dukkha and it needs to be, as the Buddha said, understood or stood with, met, 
not projected inwardly and creating a self out of it, I'm so bad and look at me, I'm suffering, I'm a failure. Not projected outward, it's you guys, <laughs> you're moving too much or you're not, you know, this world, not repressed. not distracted from, but just simply met. This, there is this experience of dukkha. So in mindfulness, another way of understanding mindfulness is the training of attention, one way of, you know, to, to bring attention here and now, to feel with the breath, the experience. How do we feel dukkha? When it's arising, a sense of dis-ease that, that's, that's operating in any moment, the lack of ease. How do we contact that you know in any you know as Ajahn Chah would say when the mind is caught up with wanting and not wanting in any moment I don't want it to be like this I want something that's not here then in that assumption we're generating struggle so how do we be with that so this mindfulness another way of looking at it is that which which contains, that which holds, that which is willing to be with. So this soft and sturdy home, we could call mindfulness a soft and sturdy home. That's a nice way of talking about it. The the awareness, what, what can be, what can contain, that which knows the dukkha isn't dukkha, of course. The awareness of the heart, which is just simply present, So in this, this sati, sati or mindfulness, cultivating this capacity for present moment awareness is often married together with this term yonisomani sakara, which is a party term, but I just want to unfold that a little bit because it will help us give a sense of fullness for this, this uh, way of being with the unfolding of whatever our experience is, particularly if it's dukkha. Yoni, yoni literally means womb. Or, or sometimes it's translated as prior, it was translated as from early Pali translator Rhys Davis translated yoni as primordial matrix. So the womb, really, or the, the womb of awareness, that which holds, that which has depth, that which can contain. Yoni, so manisakara manas is, means mind, an aspect of mind, usually connected with that which experiences the, uh, can, knows the, the ex- designates the world as an object, that part of the mind that can go, this is you, this is me, this is that which is moving out and creating the sense of the world out there as an object, as different from me as a subject. There's something happening to me, usually this is how we feel it, there's a me-ness that's affected by what's designated, the mind that goes out and says, person, spirit rock, retreat center, dhamma talk, comfortable, uncomfortable, like, don't, all of those perceptions, all of those namings. So manas, this activity of mind that designates, that names, sikara, means to make or to put. So putting that activity of the mind, the stuff of the mind, if you like, that which is designating it, putting it back into the womb of awareness, 
gathering back all that's emerging, all that we name, all that we objectively know to be separate from ourselves. That's how we usually experience the world as separate from ourselves. Putting that back with this activity of mindfulness. So this holding or this awareness is that which encompasses and envelopes and is with, without strategy, without conditions, without demand, but is just simply, with this first noble truth, just simply with the way it is, holding and allowing in that womb, in that activity of mindfulness, the awareness, allowing the awareness to mix with whatever is and bring about wisdom, illumination, understanding, awareness. Its nature is to reveal, its nature is to illuminate, its nature is to see. Its nature is wise, intelligent, to understand. So sometimes this is more generally translated as mindfulness and wise comprehension or mindfulness and wise reflection. So these are the irritations going on in the poem that rub into a pearl. This this willingness to open, to be with the experience of uh, often what we are with in our in our meditation is this is the what's called the sankara things from things patternings conditionings habits tendencies that come up from from the past from what's been conditioned how we've been. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that's not always easy to be with. So whatever comes up, that holding and being with, it's that, that, that those very conditions, particularly if they have this experience of dukkha within them, it's that, as we're willing to be with, that begins to, that friction begins to, in a way, stimulate our wisdom, stimulate our compassion, stimulate our inquiry. We can't really... The, 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 uh, the, there, there can be no awakening without suffering, really. <laughs> you know, the, and dukkha, in a way, has, a, has this function, if you like. You, you can't really have the light without the dark. You can't have one without the other, the Buddha without Mara. You know, they, they go together. So, so the, 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 that which irritates and rubs into a pearl. But there's a very big difference from, from unconscious suffering, just being overwhelmed by suffering and engaging it consciously. Engaging it with mindfulness, engaging it with awareness. So some of these sankharas, some of these patterns, some of these ancient tendencies that we'll feel as we open the mind, as we open the awareness, are not easy to be with. They're quite... And some of them will come again and again and again, and they'll be very familiar. Places of, of anxiety, places of lack of confidence, places of where we wobble, places of longing... Uh, these, uh, so these uh, 
Some of them are very familiar for all of us. Feeling dislocated or feeling sad or feeling upset. But my experience is that as we trust in the power of awareness and the, the power of mindfulness, that, that what starts to happen is the relationship to, to the patterns or the sankharas as they come up, the, the relationship to them changes. And as that relationship changes from reactivity, from resistance, from being shaped by that pattern, becoming that pattern, then the power from those things which, dis- which disturb and which generate suffering diminishes, the, the power of that diminishes. For example, i use an example from my own practice, one of the patterns or sankharas that I really uh, worked with a lot, it's very familiar for me, comes up again and again in different situations, which is a profound feeling of lack of confidence or a lack of rootedness or well-being or worth or self-blame. It's not, I'm talking about this knowing that I'm not alone here <laughs> in this particular sankara or this particular pattern. It's very common in our society. It's, there's somehow an innate sense of real lack of worth in our being or lack of really loving ourselves or lack of really feeling a, a belonging here. <laughs> and, it, and it comes up with different symptoms you know, it can be sparked by anything, and it will come up as a, a, you know, can come up as feeling of, you know, not not very confident or need, needing affirmation or, or just not feeling very at ease. Uh, or, and it can come up very profoundly. I mean, for me, it's come up as feeling actually very suicidal, even just like such a lack of permission on some level that I might as well just take myself out. You know, so those kinds of, you know, that's, I'm just talking about the shape of it. It's a sankara, it's a condition, it's been conditioned in. Somewhere along the way, without having to go on all the storylines, that's been conditioned in. And that's so, it's not, a, you know, it's not ultimately my, my true nature, but it's a, it's a pattern. And it's one of many. So as I sit and as I practice over the years, it will come up. And it has come up. But what I've noticed is as the mindfulness increases, there's more capacity to contain the fullness of the pattern as it emerges. At first you get the the effects of it. You get maybe the the feeling of depression it can bring up or the feeling of dislocation. And as the mindfulness and the awareness deepens and the trust in that deepens, then more and more of it begins to emerge. The fullness of it emerges. And uh, I had a, you know, an experience about a year ago when this got triggered. I was with Kitty Sara and we were, we were um, in South Africa and we'd gone on a little holiday and we'd gone to the beach. And, uh, you know, often these patterns will come up when we're supposed to be really enjoying ourselves <laughs> and having fun, <laughs> you know, and you go to the optimum place and you think this is it, you know, lay back, kick, kick, kick off the shoes and it's going to be great. And in fact, of course, the opposite often happens. And we were, we were sitting, and we had an argument about something, which is embarrassing to have to acknowledge, but it's the reality of any relationship. <laughs> you know, you know, it was something very petty, but it sparked for me this spark. And it was more profound than that. I've been struggling, actually. There's, there was a lot that I was struggling with at that time in South Africa. It had been very difficult. So I was already on the edge 
of a lack of resourcing, a lack of holding. So I was more prone. And I've been very exhausted, more prone. When one gets very exhausted and debilitated, we're more prone for these deep patterns to come up, which sometimes can be very useful if you have enough containment to work them through. Other times it can be overwhelming. And this particular time when it got sparked and the, the feeling of it, you know, going into this, you know, I really was in some ways able to experience the, the ice. It felt like ice. The depth, the depth of, of hatred turns towards myself like an ice. And, and, and the, 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 the life statement that came up with it, was sitting, we're sitting at the edge of the Indian Ocean, which is actually very beautiful, but there's sharks in there. And the light, it was like, well, I just, uh, you know, I'm going to go feed myself to the sharks. It was that, and it, it was shocking for me to acknowledge the depth of that pattern. But there was, and at, you know, that moment was very beautiful. Kitty Sara came, because I'd gone into this ice, so it's very hard to get near me. But, <laughs> but he was very brave. And he came and just held my hand. You know, and sometimes we can't always do that on our own. You know, someone to hold one's hand in those moments, you know. And just to sit there and be there and hold, you know, that extra holding. So that in, in the willingness, there was something that, for me at that point, the mindfulness after years of moment-by-moment moment practice bringing, you know, not moment-by-moment, moment, that's a bit grandiose, but, you know, intermittent <laughs> moments of being here, had developed to such a strength that I was able to feel the depth of that dukkha. And there was something about the, un, the completely unconditional willingness to meet it as it was, as it is, that I feel prim, primarily shifted the power of it. And, and a, a lifting and a dissolving as a consequence of a lot of affect, depression and despair and struggle and negativity which is an ongoing process of integration. But it's, and I've felt that with other experience, that with other dynamics, but there's something about the power of this first noble truth that, you know, the, 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 the building of, as in the, um, as in the, the line, we can churn with all that goes wrong, but then we must lay all distraction down and water every living seed. This resourcing or watering, this this practice of mindfulness, and all the things that we're practicing here is really watering our capacity to contain and be with and transform these places of suffering and darkness if they come to visit us. And as the deeper the darkness, the the brighter the illumination, the brighter the light. So another thing Ajahn Chah would say is all of this practice is preparation. You know, although, as I was saying at the beginning of the talk, we're not really ever going anywhere, which is true, but it's also true to say that these moments of mindfulness, bit by bit, drip by drip, they're like preparation to, of steadying, of knowing where to take refuge, knowing how to hold steady in the heart of awareness that's totally unshakably present to how it is for when really big things do hit. And we can't shift the rocks. You know, that's, that's, that happens. We know it happens. It's happened already, I'm sure, for all of us in one way or another. So then, can we meet it? You know, and it's, this is the training for that. This is it. You know. 
And this is why, you know, we must really give value, even if we feel, oh, I'm complete write-off today. <laughs> but to give yourself value for actually even being able to sit here in some way or another. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe catch a breath in a day. That's great, you know? I mean, really, yeah, it's great. You know, some days are a complete write-off, you know? It's like, well. So, yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone, but seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it's a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call God. So God is a word that's kind of not very kosher to use these days, is it? (laughs) It's layered, so many different, but you know, there is a, a transcendence of this. There is a dimension that we can be aware of. There is that which, which, that, which, that which is aware, that which knows, you know, which is intimately knowing of how it is. The Dhamma that's unfolding here and now is also transcending how it is. Not through dismissing or denying, but it knows that which is free. It can know that which is free. So in this inquiry, in the Dhamma Vichaya, the, the tools of our toolkit that we're learning on this retreat, the samatha, the calming, the steadying, the meeting of the moment, however it is, whether it's dukkha or whether it's joy, whether it's pleasure or whether it's pain. You know, also this inquiry begins to allow us to see more deeply into the actuality of the nature, this breath that has no breather. Eugene said last night, the breath can take us all the way. This is true. You know, the breath was with us the whole of the way. Breathing, we're breathing. Taking a breath, following the breath, being with the breath, feeding the breath. But also as we explore the breath, we can begin to notice that actually the breath is constantly changing. Constantly moving, we we actually call it the breath, but it's not the anything. It's a process. It's a dynamic, and it's also utterly, as was mentioned last night, utterly intimate, because we're breathing it in. We're taking in the breath. This thing called the breathing is actually energizing us, giving us life, sustaining our life. But it's totally and utterly impersonal. We can't control it. Well, we can for a moment, but we can't own it. So this breath that has no breather is teaching us a very important truth. And so this wisdom, this insight, this seeing the Dhamma here and now, everything is teaching us that there's no owner, ultimately. There's a temporary, we could say temporarily, we have the idea that we're owning these things. <laughs> of who, who owns Spirit Rock, by the way? <laughs> No, we're owning these states, mind states. We're owning this body. We're owning this breath. We're owning our house. We're owning our car. We're owning the roles that we have. That's what we are. But, but without, you know, that's, that's assumption. But when there's wisdom, we know this is a temporary arrangement. And so as we recognize that, as awareness recognizes that, then it's able to release from that assumption and enter more profoundly this God. 
this immovable suchness of the heart, uh, which is always present, timelessly aware, which is unfolding dynamically, teaching us in every breath, in every flower, in every cloud that crosses the sky, in every blade of grass that's pushing through concrete, in every pain in the body, in every feeling that passes through the heart, in every mood in the mind, in every thought form that arises and passing, how mysterious it is, how magical it is. The Dhamma unfolding here and now, in both its stillness, in its immovability, in its suchness, in its awareness, in its primordial nature, and in its dynamic flow, revealing everything revealing itself to us, teaching us here and now, in its beauty, in its fullness, in its completion, in its wholeness. This is what we are, and this is what we're not. Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening, no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk for a while, but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong, but then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it's a door into the endless breath that has no breather into the surf that human shells call God. You can sit for a minute.
So thank you for your kind attention. Uh, so take some time to do some walking meditation, and then for those that have the energy, um, there'll be the last sitting again at uh, nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.